This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security. It's unholy. I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And no, you're neat this week because, as many of you will know, it is the Festival of Shavuot, which means we'll be back with a regular brand new episode of Unholy next week. For now, though, we thought we would share a conversation we have enjoyed. It's with friend of the podcast, the brilliant novelist, writer, and teller of short stories, Edgar Keret. This one from a few weeks back. We hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Here's our conversation with Edgar Keret. This is Edgar Keret about himself in his own words. It's fair to say I'm an anxious person. It's fair to say a lot of other things about me too, that I'm not relaxed and I'm a bit of a coward, that I'm slightly paranoid, although anxious is a more polite word and we're not here to hurl insults. This is from his newsletter. Edgar Keret is a superstar of the Israeli literary scene, writer, filmmaker, internationally published author. His work has been translated into f- over four dozen languages. His stories are sad and funny and absurd and unforgettable. His exhibition about his mother called Inside Out is being presented now in the Jewish Museum in Berlin. We'll hear his stories about her, his thoughts about art. But in this country, it's pretty impossible not to start with politics. So Edgar, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for, for having me. I mean, your needs right, really. It's the fate of any writer in Israel, I think, that every time they speak to anybody, the first question is always, so what about the political situation? Forget the stories you've written, the books you've written. What about the news? With the politics going on now, though, it does feel very intense. What's your view of it? Um, what do you think of these protests that have been filling the streets? Um, what's happening, do you think? Well, I want to say that, you know, I, I really love the time when they would uh, need a writer or an artist to interpret reality because it was so complex and ambiguous. But this really isn't the situation. I mean, you know, I mean, a five-year-old kid who had seen Star Wars, you know, <laughs> would know who he should root for. The moment where, the moment where basically all the economists, uh, lawyers, friends of Israel in the U.S. and, and the world, Doctors, you know, professors, students, Nobel Prize winners, they're all saying this thing is not helpful and it will jeopardize the, the, the Israel democracy. And basically the two people who are rooting for it is a, a guy who was in, a, indicted three times, you know, in criminal offenses and a, a person who's standing to a trial and they're all talking about how they need urgently to change the judicial system. By the way, you know, the judicial system in Israel have many problems, but one of its biggest problem is the fact that the processes are very, very slow. But the reform would not affect that. It would just mean that the prime minister would uh, affect or elect the, the judges that will try him, but it would not make processes any quicker. So, so I'm saying it's really like Netanyahu, and me, we were never on the same camp. But there were times where, you know, you'd need to have some sweat to argue with him. But I think that now we're living in such a partisan reality, you know, very much so like in the US or in the UK when it comes to Brexit, that it, the decisions became so uh, tribal and religious that as an intellectual, you feel that you don't really have a, a lot to give. You know, you can wear the colors of your team but nobody needs you to interpret reality because reality kind of hits you smack in the face. But but you do have writers. I mean, we talk, Jonathan mentioned the protests and the literary giant David Grossman, who's talking in the protests last Saturday. You write about politics. It's not hard to guess where your heart is, but, but you don't do that kind of thing. You don't talk in front of a crowd and sort of rally the troops. Why is that? No, because I, I think, you know, as a writer, I think that my... my a forte or my power is really to take something that seems to be simple and to show it as more complex and ambiguous. And I, I think that when you stand on a, a stage and you really need to uh, incite people and to make them believe in a greater idea, it takes a different kind of talent. You really need to take something complex and present it as simple. And I'm saying, you know, I don't think that all the people who can do one thing can do the other. You know, David may be able to do both, but with me, you know, I, I usually, I think that my role in society is that when a gang of people are running in one direction, 
I, I'm the guy who say, let's wait for a moment. Let's think, do we really need to go there? So I don't really think that I'm a great power uh, in, the give, uh, 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 in giving speeches in, in demonstrations, but I attended practically all of them. And that's because the writers have a flexible working hours. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I'm struck by your Star Wars thing, because I can see who's Darth Vader in the story you've uh, sketched for us, but I'm not seeing the Luke Skywalker or the Obi-Wan Kenobi. Uh, I mean, I know there are villains in this story, but are there any heroes that you can see? Uh, no, 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 and it's really, really funny because uh, at one of the demonstrations, uh, when Sheila wanted to make a sign, she had an idea for a sign that kind of had to present kind of the two camps. And it was very easy to put Netanyahu or Derry or Levin on one side. But when she came to look for, for a face representing basically her point of view, you know, it was, I think, in the end, the closest it came to was Winnie the Pooh. You know, because, <laughs> because, because, because the thing is that really, I think that uh, in the uh, Hebrew uh, tradition, we have this thing that is called Geulad, a Geulad Erech Abivim, a redemption through the salvation source. through the gutters. Salvation through the gutters is Sal- how you would, yeah. Salvation yeah. through the gutters. And I w- wrote in my Facebook that basically for so long, I really felt that I had so little in common with most of the political representative in Israel, people uh, like Gantz, Matan Kahana, or Gidon Saar, it doesn't matter what I think about them personally. We don't share the same opinions when it comes to refugees. We don't share the same opinions when it comes to the two-state solutions. You know, we, we don't share opinions about anything. But it seems that, you know, when somebody kind of puts us on the floor in the middle of the street and starts kicking us in the head, we all agree that, this is not right. And the idea is that you have a demonstration that you can have chief of staffs on the one hand and the, I don't know, vegan potheads on the other, <laughs> and they're all there together. It's basically that they have one thing in common. You know, they really don't want to live in a, a fascist country where they don't have any way to protect themselves, where, where uh, many people are, are kind of a second level people where Palestinians have no rights uh, whatsoever. They don't want that. But I think that this is a very kind of weak meeting point. You know, I mean, it's not as if we want to build the third temple as some of the people in the go- our government want to, but we just want people to stop kind of messing with the life that we were able to build here. And to be honest, when I go to demonstrations, I don't carry a sign because when I go to the, those demonstrations, they look like the Disneyland of demonstrations of Israel through the ages. You know, it's like I'm going down memory lane. I see people holding signs that they still had from the social protests or people holding signs for the two-state solution or holding signs for something. And it just kind of brings out how how different the people in this camp are. And I'm, I'm, I really, really feel that, you know, that that it's weird that we had reached this point where people have to speak in bad English and state things that are obvious, you know, that it's not good that a government will appoint the judges who will have to agree if what they're doing is right or wrong, that the Supreme Court system is mostly protects the weak uh, people in the in the democracy and that the nature of democracy is not that the majority will rape the minority, but that we, we will be able to coexist together. Now, so I'm saying it's really like, I'm sorry for being vain, but sometimes I feel I'm overqualified, you know, <laughs> to, to explain that. We just need a kindergarten teacher to say that. And, you know, and the fact that we need a Kahanman, who's a no, Nobel Prize winning winner, to explain that in an interview really just uh, says something, and I'm not talking about right and left, about how dumb our society in general had become. How basically we, uh, we exchanged information and arguments for emotions. Basically, what you really see here, and I'm saying, you know, I saw it also from the liberal side, is that to be a, politi- uh, a politician really means how you can get even from the people on the other side. And, you know, and I followed the Brexit thing, and I couldn't help thinking that one of the main reasons for the people who supported Brexit was that all those kind of uh, 
intellectuals that goes to France and drink wine and speak bullshit will stop smiling. You know, this, this was one of the goals of doing it. And really in, uh, in Israel, uh, when we live in a society where I think that, you know, in different periods, both the settlers and the ultra-Orthodox felt uh, marginalized, felt attacked by the rest of the Israeli society, they really think it's kind of a payback day. You know, when the ultra-Orthodox offer a law in which every person who has a dog will be fined in a set sum every year because ultra-Orthodox don't have dogs and this is a way to get even, you really understand that it's that it's really a, a sometimes when you have a bad marriage or a bad relationship, then your partner or you ask the other person for something that you don't really need, but you just want to frustrate them. You just want, you know, to embarrass them in front of their parents. And this is the dynamics that we're having. And I can, I'm going to say really something very extreme, but you know, in Israel, we all say we have different opinions, but we're the same people and stuff like that. But when I look at the entire world, after the social media, most of the countries, they're really split in the middle. You know, it could be US, UK, Turkey, Israel. And basically what happened is that your friends are on Facebook and the people that you hate the most live across the street. You know, it's not the old days where, where uh, French people would make uh, uh, jokes about British people that they get drunk at 4 p.m. and British uh, people will be appalled how all the French people have lovers and they never had ones, you know? We don't have any characteristic of societies. You, you, the people who are pro-vaccination or anti-vaccinations are all over the place living in the same neighborhood and basically trying to kill each other. It, it's almost as if we need to... Uh, to cantonize countries. We need to find some kind of a libertarian solutions that will come instead of this idea of countries because basically it doesn't work. You know, when I look at Ari Deri, you know, and I'm saying he's a super intelligent guy, you know, he, he speaks very well. Everything he says is basically that he wouldn't want me to exist. You know, he wouldn't want me to live or to do anything. So it doesn't matter. It's like, it's, we can live in a reality where Will one side will oppress the other, or you know, or that will get be oppressed? But but the, I'm really really doubtful that, that there will be this moment where we all think together. You know, those of us uh, that believe that Jews are better than others, and those of us who really don't know how we came to this place. But the the interesting thing about what you're saying, Itzgal, is that you kind of think like the whole world is becoming crazy. Like it's not only our problem; it's a it's a global problem. Yeah, it is, a, it is a global pro problem. And I think that, you know, that usually what happens in Israel, Israel is kind of like a petri dish that if you stir at it, you can see what's going to happen 10 years later somewhere else. You know, before September 11, I, I used to go on tours in the US and say, Oh, one day you'll have terrorist attack on your ground, you know, and people say, Oh, come on. And it did happen. You know, we're not that special. We're just a, on steroids. We're just doing everything quicker. You and, know, we had and, um, Tom Friedman of the New York Times on the podcast a few weeks ago, and he said that the relationship between Israel and America is the relationship between off-Broadway and Broadway. That Israel tries things out and, you know, has them first, and then eventually they go to Broadway. You know, you'll get it a few yeah. years later. That's the, with your 9-11 example, it's a bit like that. I, I I would say that maybe Israel is the canary and, you know, and the U.S. is the miner holding our cage, you know. It's basically because we don't even have the resilience or the economical uh, back, backbone or the history of a country to survive things that the U.S. US can. Because, you know, it's a two-way street because, because when you look at Trump and you look at what happened with the people storming the Capitol and saying that, you know, that Trump had actually won the election... Basically, I can easily see something like this happening here if Netanyahu would have lost. But I'm saying he's basically doing the same from a position of power. It's the, it's this idea that, you know, that if it's a democracy that doesn't give me complete control, what kind of a democracy would that be, you know? And I'm saying that we're also standing in a very weird situation where you have a government saying one thing and a prime minister say, don't take them seriously. Don't worry, don't worry. They're just talking. I promised them, but I'm lying. You know, this guy said that I'm a liar, a son of a liar. So don't really, he's just saying he's the minister of something, but who cares? You know, I just bullshitted with him. So it's really, really like, you know, it's a dynamic of a, 
a soap borderline with a sitcom. <laughs> and I want to say, and I, I want to say that when I see the coverage of it, you know, in TV, there is this feeling that uh, this idea that uh, we shouldn't take a stand. You know, we shouldn't take a stand, which is something that happens in world media for so long. You know, we can, we can show a clip, you know, in which you see a soldier beating up a peace activist and they bring two people to the studio who say that he's not beating him up and that they're actually making love and that the guy, the, the peace activist started it all and just so there will be some balance. But the idea is, that for me, uh, the communication is not somebody who's really trying to make peace in a fight between two sides. You know, it's really th those people who should state the fact and stand for these facts. You, and, you, you know, surely and, you're talking about another channel, I'm sure. You're just... Oh, no, no, of course, of course. <laughs> no, I'm saying, I'm saying, you know, you're in a channel where, where, where uh, your political analyst said in the most... is a. Uh, crazy evening when they burned the synagogue he said that the that we should make sure that the people who burn the synagogues will count their dead you know so so i'm saying that the, the idea where where the news is basically kind of chewing the information and spitting it in our in our face as some kind of an emotion now you should be appalled now you should be surprised now you should do this or now you should do that it's really it it, it creates some kind of a reality where it's easier for people who are not democratic to control community because the, the job of like, you know, when they say about the journalism being the watchdog of democracy, then really like, I mean, in, in, in Israel, at least it's the puppy of democracy. You know, it's really like, you know, it doesn't even bark, you know, it just rolls over and want to be liked by everyone. <laughs> okay. So we, just so we know, don't get, but we can get dragged into a conversation about Israeli media. I do want to yeah. pull you back into talking about the junction between politics and art. Because if I look at what you've been doing in recent years, so there's this exhibition about your mother in Berlin. We're going to talk about that in, in greater detail later in our conversation. There's a series for Arte. There's a movie in Japanese and a short film for a Polish production company. Is this a conscientious decision to sort of pull away a little bit in your art from, from Israel? No, you know, I was born in Israel. I lived here all my life. My parents were Holocaust survivors who saw great importance in Israel. It wasn't kind of a just a random choice or one that made, uh, you know, it, it was an ideological one. And all my life I lived in Israel and basically wrote about Israel and I still write and publish books here. But whenever I need to do something that needs funding, I find it problematic to get the money here. You know, I, I the last series I wrote with, with a friend, which was about a rabbi adopting a, a Palestinian child that his family was murdered in a hate crime is currently being developed by Netflix Poland. And it's about a Catholic priest uh, taking care of a Chechnyan immigrant because I couldn't uh, produce it in Israel. And now I'm, I don't think that, you know, I'm being uh, blacklisted, you know, for my opinions or anything. I, I do think that we're living in a, in a global environment in which we are, have switched, you know, from art to entertainment and that basically with Netflix algorithms and with broadcast channels really wanting to control the content, mm -hmm. then the, uh, this idea of somebody coming with all kinds of ambiguous and strange ideas who really do don't give a clear message that you should be nice uh, uh, to weaker uh, parts of the community or that uh, women should be presidents. You know, the moment that somebody says something that you say, hey, is that good? Is that bad? You know, then a, then a broadcasting channel, especially in Israel, would say, we don't want to mess with that. You know, maybe people will misunderstand what you're saying. And, and in this kind of reality, I'm hustling to do whatever I want to do. I, whenever I want to do something, I try and I try and I try until I find a, a nice German slash French slash Japanese person who says, ah, I find it interesting. But this is only after I ran out of Israelis to pitch, pitch this to. So are you saying that it's those other societies, not Israel, that are more open to ambiguity and that Israel wants it to be black or white, sort of morally clear one way or the other? I would say that ambiguity now is a global taboo, but that, but that you know, when you go to bigger places, then, you know, sometimes uh, you have other chances to deal with that. But, but what I think is that we live in a very, very strange time where 
people basically want to control everything. You know, when, when you have road rage, they want to control the way that other people will drive. They want to control what they're going to learn. They want to control the fact if you will vaccinate or not vac- vaccinate, you know, and in this uh, kind of reality, People want to c- control the content that they're going to watch. You know, the moment that the, my best friend's son watches Netflix series uh, in double speed and he complains about some series, series that they're not good because you can't watch them in double speed. So he doesn't watch them. You know, then the moment that this is the bar that is being set, then of course, you know, if I write something that is a little bit comedy, but it's sad in the end and there is a sci-fi bit to it, then the Netflix algorithm says, you know, we want our customer to be happy and you're confusing them. And, and, and I really feel that, you know, the way that I, the romantic way that I saw art was that basically uh, the foundations are our life, our reality, the way we think function. And there is something about art that it's kind of a cloud hovering above it. But right now people are treating art as if art is the foundation and we're going to build reality on it. You know, if we'll have women representation in Netflix series, then of course people are going to be nice to women and allow them to have an abortion if they want to. But it doesn't work this way. It's a little bit like that you have faulty airplanes and you're fighting for the fact that they won't show movies about exploding airplanes on the airplanes. Now, I don't care, you know, show me an exploding airplane on the airplane, but just get get the pilot to to let me safely, you know? And and this idea is that, that, that art has really a practical function. You know, I had an argument with somebody I truly appreciate that they told me about kind of blacklisting artists that basically it's an economical act. You know, it's like, let's say, if I won't go and see a Woody Allen movie, I'm punishing him. He won't put money into his pocket. Then I want, I thought to myself, you know, the moment that you say that, you say that money is more important than art because I'm getting something and giving money in exchange. And the moment that you say, don't give him your money, you basically say, it's really not worth it. You know, you're in a position of power. Money, you know, you can, you can buy a hamburger with it. But this guy, he just, talks about his emotion. Who cares? You know, let's find a nice guy who talks about his emotion. Now, throughout history, I would say that, you know, artists were basically uh, perverts with license, not to live their life as perverts, but to think their life as perverts. And the the idea that there was something there where that people could approach and say, I got something in it in me, but I would never cut it loose, but thank you for naming it. Thank you for saying that I'm not alone. This was really the function of the artist. Now they want the artist to be the best student in class, the one with the best shave, the one who talks nicely. They want stand-up comedian to do that. Now it's really, really strange. You know, I can say to you, look, I, I'm very short and I used to be fat. And the reason that I'm not fat now is basically just because I'm depressed. When, I'm, when I have good mood, I become fat. I'm happy about it. Now, as a short and fat person, I would say to you that, you know, if I would want to set your knit with a guy and she'd ask me how he's like, I would say he's short and fat, but he's super smart and stuff like that because I think it's relevant. The fact that I won't say it, if you need, will go to a date and see somebody who's short and fat, it will have an effect on her. So why can't I represent that in reality? And on the other hand, sorry for giving this kind of crazy speech. On the other hand, I want to say is that we invent new words and introduce them to the language, not to clarify situation, but just to make them more obscure. Yeah. And I said to you need to, once, I really don't need the anchorman to chew the news for me. Yeah. If somebody murders his family, I know he's not nice. I don't need people to say that. <laughs> I agree. Let's get on to your latest piece of work, just because there's so much we, to talk about with this. And I really want to hear you on this subject, which is this exhibition of yours called Inside Out, which is about your mother. And again, it's an example of taking your work abroad. It's at the Jewish Museum in Berlin. I think the best way to get a sense of what you've done here is to hear some of it, because it's built around some stories about her, some very, very short, some long. Suitably for us, we can play a couple of short ones. And I just think it will give a little flavour of what it is you're doing. This um, Maybe it doesn't need any introduction, this very first one about your, your mother and the business she ran. So let's hear this. Fabric. Before I was born, my mother worked at an advertising firm in Tel Aviv. 
It was a demanding job, and she wanted to devote as much time as possible to her kids. So when I was a baby, she quit her job and opened a fabric store on a little street in our town of Ramat Gan. Fabric basement was on a basement floor with no windows, and it looked a bit like a musty cellar, but everything inside the store was decorated in good taste. Mom used to take me with her to work every day, put me on the counter in a bassinet, and there I spent my hours listening to her stern pronouncements on questions of cleavage and rivets, and inquisitively watching the eager women who entered the dimly lit basement to search for the perfect fabric and cut for the dress of their dreams. Mom liked to say that because of all those hours I spent in the store, I learned how to pay compliments to older women long before I learned how to walk. I remember my mother hoisting heavy rolls of fabric around in that narrow, dank space. It was hard work and not very rewarding. But when I was little, the fabric basement seemed to me like a sort of secret kingdom where my mother reigned supreme. Her subject came to her with their hopes and dreams, and she, the queen mother, proclaimed which options made them look thinner and which fatter, what was flattering and what looked cheap. She spoke with no hesitation or excessive politeness, just as a queen should. And the women kept coming to that little side street in Ramat Gan from all over the country, so that my mother could flip through the stacks of Buddha magazines piled neatly on the counter and select the patterns that would accentuate their advantages and conceal everything else. Not everyone can be beautiful, mom told me once. But if you make an effort and you don't give up, you can always be less ugly. I mean, just hearing that, it is... It goes to the point you were saying about ambiguity, because you come out of that story thinking your mother's a lovely woman and also quite a tough woman all at once. And even in just a few lines, you're conveying a wholeness about her. And all the stories do that. But you have said, I think, elsewhere that it it took you a long time to write about her and you found it difficult to write about her. And yet when you hear a story like that, you think, well, she's an absolute natural for for as a subject for a writer. So why was it difficult? Well, I, I think my mother was a, a very co- complex person and she was also the closest person to me in my life and the person that I loved like no other person. And uh, th- whenever I would speak to people a- about her, it would seem like, you know, I like to compare my mother to God. I know that is, <laughs> but that she has many faces, you know, she can be, uh, merciful and vengeful, you know, and humble and vain. And and every person I met would kind of try to sum her up as something else. And I think that there was something about my mom after surviving the Holocaust, you know, after losing her entire family, that uh, uh, she, she rebelled against any attempt to sum her up. You know, we lived in a, in a city called, or town called Ramat Gan, and whenever they would have some kind of a Holocaust memorial, they would always ask my mother to speak because it's a city where m- most of the people are from Iraqi descent. So they didn't have many Holocaust survivors. And my mother always refused. And one day I asked my mom, why do you refuse? And she said, son, I don't work in the Holocaust, which is like she knew that it wasn't grammatical. But for her, like the Holocaust was this kind of big conglomerate and they wanted her to wear the uniform and be a Holocaust survivor. And for her, I think that, you know, as a child, she avoided having a, a, a number tattooed to her, her hand, but being seen as in a reductive sense as a Holocaust survivor, people feeling sorry for her, her having to take part in a certain narrative, seemed to her that it's as if the Nazis had branded her. They can't, they limited the space that she created. And for me, it was a great challenge, basically, to be able to tell her story without pigeonholing her in any of those holes. You know, a Holocaust survivor, a nice person, a tough person. She was all of this. And, and I know that the stories that I can say can never be complete, but I thought that if there would be enough of them and if there would be enough uh, artists in giving their own interpretation to how they, they see this conduct, then maybe it, it could bring some of the complexities that uh, she had in reality. 
You know, I have a very good friend who went through a writing class, a creative writing class with you. Uh, she loved it. But one of the things she said, she told me, was that you teach a lot about writing as therapeutic. And I wonder if writing about your mother, and this seems to be someone with a very big personality, did that help you go through the grief of, of saying goodbye to her? Was that part of, of deciding to write now? Yes, for sure. You know, there, there is a, a funny thing that uh, working on this project, I suffered from a herniated disc. Uh, and when I went to the doctor in Berlin, I said to him, you know, I didn't lift anything. And he looked at me and he said, yes, but you know, dead moms can be very heavy too. And uh, for me, uh, uh, th there was this moment that I, when I went to the opening of the ceremony and I, I wasn't shaved. And my mother, all her life, she really, you know, she, she was a true anarchist and she would let us do whatever we wanted to. But she always insisted that when I go on stage on events, I'll shave because she said, this is simply disrespectful. It's not aesthetic or anything. It just means that you don't care about the people. And whenever I would do an event that I, I knew would be on YouTube, I would always shave <laughs> because I, I didn't want to mess with my mom. <laughs> and when, and when we opened the exhibition, I found myself unconsciously coming there, not shaved. And when I tried to figure out to myself why it happened, and I thought to myself, this is a way of noting to myself that I'm not doing it for her memory. I'm doing it for myself. I'm doing it seeking some kind of closure, trying to give a name to something that I don't have a name. And, and for me, this is always the artistic process. The artistic process is basically dealing with the things that bothers you the most and then hoping that it will interest other people too. But this is, this is the order in which it works. I want us to hear another second story. Um, this one is in, well, it's a, in, a, in a restaurant. Um, let's hear this one. A good day. When I was a kid, I absolutely loved eating at restaurants. It's not that I was some kind of foodie. It's just that in those days, in socialist Israel of the 1970s, going out for dinner was such a rare and decadent event that it was impossible not to get excited about it. Once every few months, we drive to Victor's place, a Tel Aviv eatery located next to a junkyard. After dinner, while mom and dad sipped Turkish coffee and smoked a cigarette, my brother would take my sister and me on an exhilarating tour of the junkyard, which we called the car cemetery. We'd stop at each crumpled vehicle and try to guess how it had ended up there. Trampled by an elephant, shot out of a cannon, or just driven too quickly and rammed into a stoplight. One Saturday, when I was about six, we went to Victor's place for my mother's and sister's birthday, since they were born on the same date. The mustachioed waiter wiped the table with a damp cloth and informed us apologetically that due to a kitchen malfunction, the restaurant would not be serving fries. The rest of the family received this news somewhat indifferently, but I took it really hard. Instead of a big pile of delicious greasy fries, the waiter put a dish of white rice on the table. And within seconds, the lavish feast I'd been looking forward to for weeks turned into just another family dinner. My mother, sensing my frustration, asked me if everything was all right. Nothing was all right, I snapped. If I couldn't have fries, the whole meal was a waste of time. And this birthday, which was supposed to be fun, was now the worst day of my life. Mom listened patiently to my vitriolic complaints. And when I was done, she put the back of her warm hand on my nap and asked me in a half whisper to tell her how many people were sitting in the restaurant. Being a good boy, I methodically counted them all. Saturday afternoon was one of the busiest time of week at Victor's, and other than our table, there were 26 diners. 26? My mom exclaimed with a whistle. That's a lot. Now could you please tell me what all those people are holding in their hands? Oh, come on, I said with a grin. That's easy. It's a restaurant. They're holding knives and forks. Mom was impressed. 26 people. 26 hungry humans sitting at their tables, 
each eating only what's on their own plate. 26 people holding knives, and yet not a single one of them is stabbing anyone else. She leaned over, planted a soft kiss on my forehead, and said, Let's agree that this is actually a pretty good day. This story had such an impact on me immediately, and I realized why, which is it reminds me of something else, which also had a huge impact on me when I first came across it, which is the opening of Arch Spiegelman's Mouse graphic novel, which the very opening thing is between the son and the father who is a Holocaust survivor, and the son is complaining about his friends being mean to him, and the father says to him, when you're locked in a cellar underground for... Uh, starving, then you know what friends are. Um, as if your experience and what you're complaining about, little child, is nothing compared to what I have seen. And there's something of that I felt in that story. You know, you paint this very rounded picture of your mother through these stories, but I did wonder if there was some of that, that you felt everything that you were living and going through, even as an adult maybe, just was nothing compared to what parents who are Holocaust survivors have seen? Well, I, I think that, that the strongest vibe I got from my parents was that reality was uh, very fluid. That they sat in restaurants like the one we're sitting in now, and then, you know, a couple of years later, they were sent to ghettos or put on trains uh, and moved to, to camps. And the idea is that my parents always taught me to think about where things can go to, not only the obvious scenario, you know. So, so I mean, I, I remember as a child that I always had this anxiety, and until this day, I hate buying things because whenever I I buy something and you know, and I give the money note, I say to myself, what would happen if the guy would just put it in the cashier and say, please pay me? No, you didn't pay me, you know. And this is a thought that goes with me since I was five because. I think five years old because I think that my my parents saw a, a social order crumble into dust, and the potential of that was always uh, uh, with me. So I think, in this sense, when I was a child, I always had this kind of thought that if there would be another Holocaust, I would not have the ability to deal with it. I would never survive. I would never have the motivation or the power. I wouldn't be merciless the way that you need to be. I wouldn't be murderous the way that you need to be. And that uh, I'm going to live until the next Holocaust will come. And then probably, you know, we'll need to check out. And this was something that I, I felt very, very strongly as a child, that my parents had something in them that I didn't have. I didn't inherit uh, this surviving skill. It's interesting to me when you talk about your mother, she called you, she named you Etgar. In Hebrew, that means challenge. That's that's yes. quite a thing to carry. I mean, did, did she ever tell you why, or is it like how, how does that? Yeah, you know, whenever I give a speaking engagements overseas, I always say that my name Edgar Keret actually means literally urban challenge, which <laughs> is a great name for a pair of sneakers, but a very <laughs> weird name for a human being, <laughs> and. And the, the, and the story behind it is that I, I have an older brother and sister and my mother wanted to have as many children as she could, but she wasn't very healthy and, and also she wasn't very young and she had a, a four conse- consecutive uh, miscarriages. Mm-hmm. And when she got pregnant with me, she understood that it was her only chance to have another child. But I got jointis in the embryo and the uh, embryo cord was tied around my neck. So the doctor said to her that I'm going to die anyway. And they wanted uh, basically to take me out in pieces, not to endanger her. But uh, she insisted on uh, having me. I was born in six months in a cesarean operation. I had the jointis and I weighed 920 grams. And the doctor said to her that uh, I'm going to die in a few weeks. So the first thing that happened when they brought me to her, she said to me, they don't know what they're talking about. I'm going to call you challenge and it will be your challenge to stay alive and to show them that they don't know anything about the medicine. And I was named challenge. And not only uh, I stayed alive to make fun of them, but also in the, when I had my Brit, 
she invited the doctor who told her that I won't survive. And according to the family myth, I, I beat him. Uh, I beat his toe uh, uh, during my Brit Mila and he had to put a bandage on it. It's really like my mother would say it in such great passion. She said, it was like a bulldog locking his jaws and he was trying to get you off his finger, but you insisted and you told him, I'm alive, I'm alive. You know, I will always be alive. My mother would kind of tell it with a lot of pathos. And the, the doctor ran away, but I stayed with the name forever. I mean, she put, I, I can't come away with this feeling that she put quite a lot on you one, one way or another. I mean, even the name we've talked about, but we're not going to hear it, but this story where your mother says to you, almost as a bedtime story, she describes to you an episode in which a neighbour was basically beaten to death in front of other people. It's, you know, even that story has a lot of ambiguity in it. But she tells it to you when you're a little, very young child, you know, as a bedtime story. You say somewhere else that, that your parents didn't hadn't seen their own parents raise them because of the early deaths of their parents, and therefore they didn't really know how to bring up children. But do you think, when you look back, that they she did put too much on you too young? Uh, you know, I, th- I think that in the end, you're kind of uh, the sum of your history, you know, and when you're in a certain moment, you can say, I'm okay with what I am, or I wish I was... Uh, Jonathan or the Incredible Hulk or I don't know, Arie Derry. But so I can say that I can say that I'm, I'm, I'm content with who I am. And I think that, you know, that I became this person through the love that I got and through the scars that I had. I often say that I wasn't raised in, in a family, but I w- was raised in a, in a loving group of partisans hiding in the forest of Ramat Gan, you know? And and I think that this was the sensation. And I, I remember that one of the things that me and my mother discussed more than once was the fact that I told her that I think that even if I'll be in an urgent situation, even if I need to save somebody, that I'm not sure that I'd be able to kill somebody. And my mother, to reassure me, would always say to me, oh, you would, you would know when the moment will come. And she say, you know, your brother, I don't know, but you, I'm sure, I'm sure you're going <laughs> to cut people for, you want, you're going to murder them in a second. Don't worry. You know, all this hesitation, the moment that anything will be in danger, you're a killer. I can see that you're a killer. Don't worry, you know. And, you know, I, and I'm a guy, I'm vegetarian since the age of five, you know, after watching Bambi. And when you're six or seven years old, and your mother assures you that if you ever need that, you strangle somebody to death or <laughs> kick his head off, you know, then, then it's both kind of reassuring, but it's also scary because you say, maybe she knows better. Maybe I am a killer and I just think that I'm a liberal left winger, you know, I'm just, I just want to explode and I don't know, be like Thanos and murder everybody on this planet. <laughs> But but it is interesting because your family, we, we should say, your two siblings, one of them is your older brother who's a, a left-wing activist, very active. And yeah. on the other hand, your sister who's uh, is a settler. I mean, she lived in a settlement. Now she lives in Masharim. She's an ultra-Orthodox. How does that all work together, even if we add, you know, discuss what we discussed at the beginning of our conversation and, and this? It, well, so my parents, again, you know, being Holocaust survivors, then my father's point of view said, is that it doesn't matter what your political ideas are. It just matter to him what reality you're aiming to for. So it's basically for him, I, uh, the political parties are just the uh, tactics. The question is, what's the strategy? And he always said, you know, when I look at your left-wing uh, brother or my, my parents themselves were right-wing, they never voted for Netanyahu, but they were like a begging kind of people. When I, I vote for begging, uh, when you make your choices, when your sister prays, we all want the same thing. We don't want to oppress anyone. We want things to be better. He said it's a little bit as if like you have a table and you want to get it out of the room. And your sister said, let's pray for God to take out the table. And your brother says, let's take it through the window. And I said, let's take it through the door. We all want the same thing. We all want to live in a, in a fair society. And that's why uh, these political opinions don't uh, create our identity which is the reverse of what's happening in social media, in Israel, and in the world. The, like, the idea is that the moment it's, a, you know, yesterday, 
I had my last uh, class in university and I invited all my students home. And my favorite student and the best one that I had in many, many years and probably one of the kindest people that I met, he lives in uh, in uh, in Hebron, in Drom Har Hebron. I don't know how you say it in English. Mm-hmm. But it's basically the most hardcore settlement, the place that me, ideologically, I think that it's the last place where Israelis and Jews should be. But I can acknowledge that and acknowledge in the same time that he is a human being who has doubts and who's basically kind and, and who keeps doing good and tries to become a better person. And there is no contradiction between the two. And I think that now we live in this kind of a binary, like, unlike reality in which uh, this is uh, this is not considered right. You know, it's really like, you know, I talked to him and, and he said to me, you know, some people in the university, the moment that they hear where I live, they stopped speaking and they walk away in the middle of a sentence and ignore me. And I really think that that one thing that that it's good for the liberal camp to to remember in these days is basically to to try and think whichever unpleasant experience that we're having as citizens now to try and think of something that is close to or similar to what people on the other side had felt. You know, let's say the fact that I don't want a, a person to bring some um, a misogynic or homophobic things inside my my son's uh, high school curriculum. Really, the closest I could get to is the fact that we want a ultra-Orthodox Institute to teach uh, math and the English or they won't get support. I'm not saying it's the same because I really understand that, you know, if they learned English and math, they would be able to integrate in society, you know, and it's good and it's good for everybody. But I can empathize with the fact that somebody goes to your children's school and tells them what you've been teaching is not good. I want you to teach that, you know, the violence of that act is something that it's easier for me to feel when it's being done to me. And I'm saying that it's a little bit like we're having this football game where each has its own team, but we should be aware of the fact that there's no rules anymore. You know, that the fact that, you know, if somebody hits me with a hammer and I hit him with a hammer, I may score a goal, but but we're losing our game. You know, Yoni mentioned um, David Grossman before, and he has this thing where he says if he had to describe who who he is and in the order of what's most important and i hope i'm getting remembering this right but i think he would say that he was jewish male israeli in that order that in terms of understanding him the most important fact about him is that he's jewish second that he's a man third that he's israeli but it was interesting to me the order it may have been male jewish israeli but the important point was that jewish came before israel and the New York Times wrote about this. It said that Keret, about you, it said Keret might be classified more as a Jewish than an Israeli writer. And it said more versed and interested in the varieties of alienation, working in the tradition of Franz Kafka, Sholem Aleichem, or Isaac Bashevis Singer. I don't know what you your answer to the Grossman question would be, which order you'd put those three things, if those would be the three important things. But is there something, is there some truth in that about you being a more Jewish voice than an Israeli voice, do you think? Yeah, well, I wouldn't know where to put the male thing, you know. I probably just put it somewhere on the shelf. But, but I'm, I'm definitely, I would see myself Jewish before I see myself as Israeli. Because, because again, as my mom would say, the Nazis had decided that for us. You know, it's really like the idea is that uh, I can immigrate from Israel, but apparently I can't stop being Jewish, you know. And uh, and my heritage has come from that. The history of my family is not from Israel. You know, it's from uh, various diasporas, you know, from Poland or from Belarus. And also, I think that there is something, I, to, to be honest, I don't feel very strongly attached to national identities. I know it's not a nice thing to say, but basically I feel that, there, that I'm kind of a diaspora Jew in the sense that if you put me in a room with five people, I will already feel a minority. <laughs> I'm most likely to disagree with most of them and to feel oppressed by the others, you know? So, 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 so I think that for me, being Jewish is really this idea that when I, I studied in elementary school, I said to myself, wow, you know, we Jews, we would argue with anybody, even with God, 
You know, look at all our heroes, Abraham, Job, you know, Jonah. You know, God said to them, go and do that. And they say, oh, no, we don't. You don't know anything about this word, God. And I think that this idea is that, you know, in Judaism, you learn in Hevruta, you know, in Perth, because you learn through polemic and through argument. All those things are things that define me. You know, for me, Israel is first and foremost a place. You know, it's a bunch of people. It's a language. Uh, it's a it's a dynamic of society that I feel attached to much more than a flag or some kind of a a, a big speech that ke- keeps you at all. Yeah, I'm quite surprised none of us said that we should start with neurotic Jewish and then the rest. But okay, can't, that kind I of do, Jewish is <laughs> kind of, of implied. It's implied. That, it's implied. Yes, it's implied. Um, I'm too neurotic to be a maid. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I have to. I, I can't. I can't end this without quoting uh, um, our our sound editor Omer, who's your biggest fan, really, in the world. And he asked me when we. I told him we were going to talk to you. He said, "You know, Edgar is so modest, but he knows he's a genius, right?" So I'm throwing that to you. <laughs> well, I'm not modest, and I don't think I'm a genius. You know, so I think he got them both wrong. But <laughs> but I'm so happy that he likes my writing. <laughs> So we should remind our listeners that your exhibit Inside Out uh, in the Jewish Museum in Berlin will run until March 19th. It's very successful, so it's been extended until March 19th. We really thank you so much for talking to us, Edgar. You made us smarter. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you, Edgar. That was our conversation with Edgar Kerret. If you haven't, then you really must become a subscriber to his Substack, these weekly dispatches he sends out. It's called Alphabet Soup by Edgar Kerret. Strongly recommended his latest life. Spoiler alert. Give some brilliant advice on living and caring and surviving. So if you enjoyed that, do join us again next week for an all new episode of Unholy. And for now, our thanks. And of course, if you're marking Shavuot, Chag Sameach. Back with you next week. This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security.